0: If you have your uh, Bible this morning, I encourage you to turn to Ephesians 2. I know you never thought we would make it. So we're starting here in Ephesians 2. We did something last week that we've never done before. We covered five verses in one setting. And I know you guys thought, whoa, this is starting to, Hopefully not. hopefully you didn't think this is starting to go downhill. That's got many connotations to it I don't want, but. This is really starting to pick up steam, and I'm so thankful to let you know that today we're only going to focus on one word. That's it. So, uh, give a little, get a little. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and tell you this, and these are the things that I shouldn't tell you as a pastor. You're probably not going to like this sermon. And the reason is, is because we're going to either venture into areas that are going to rub you wrong because of maybe what you believe about the Scriptures, or what you believe about how we should view the Scriptures, or... You're going to think it's too theological. You can't understand it. The Bible is theology. All of life is theology. Everything that you address and even what you eat can be boiled down to your viewpoint about God. It doesn't matter. God has a bearing in all of it. Whether you choose to embrace that or reject that, it's still the truth. And so what we're going to look at today may be a little bit different. I will encourage you, though, spend the day marinating on it. If you go online gbcportage.com. You can go up to the top right-hand corner. There's a section called Pastor's Blog. And I've written about 12 to 13 pages on just this one subject that we're dealing with. In fact, I actually had to cut out two and a half pages just to make it manageable for people, okay? So I've gone through and edited all this stuff and added to it just because I want you to have a thorough understanding. And then after that, if for some reason your question is not answered, then please contact me and let me know. Uh, but at least give it a fair hearing first, sort through it, understand where I'm trying to come from, and understand what the Bible is trying to tell us before we make any sort of uh, deductions or conclusions about this, or just simply fold our arms and say, well, that's not right, I, I, I just don't grasp that. So, You've got your note-taking books, here's what we're going to do first. Ephesians chapter 2, starting verse 1. We're just going to look at this one verse, mark it up a little bit, and then we're going to hone in our focus on one Small section. And you. This is the recipients of this. Okay, is it showing up well? It is showing up well. Good job. And you. And being connected to the end of chapter 1. What was that? The fact that the church is the body of Christ filling all in all. The relationship of that is just as Jesus Christ is the earthly manifestation of who God is. So now that He has ascended to the right hand of Father and making intercession for us and serving as our great high priest and preparing a place of which He will come back to receive us, we now, as the body of Christ, are serving as His earthly representatives. Your citizenship is not here. You don't live here. If you're not a believer in Christ, you do live here. If you are a believer in Christ, you don't live here. But I think what's great is, is you can decide before the end of today where you want to live. And I hope that you respond well to what you hear. Notice that they were, he's writing to a church for so they saved people, but this is their past lot, or past issue, or past dealing. They were dead. That's a big deal. In fact, that's what we're going to be focusing this entire time on, is the nature of dead. But notice the problem was, as they were dead in. Okay? Oh, stop that. That left side, what is it? it? Drives me crazy. A previous location. Before, when you didn't have Christ, you were located somewhere else. And it definitely wasn't in the covering of Christ. And so all you had was yourself, your own, on your own. And we're going to learn later next week, walking according to the ways of this world, walking according to how Satan is carefully knitted, crafted, orchestrated, everything that we see in this world system. We might not have been full out Satan worshipers with the devil horns and the pentagrams and all that crazy stuff like that. But simply by walking according to the orchestration of the way that the world is, we find ourselves classified in that category by default. Why? Because sin is not of God. God hates sin. For some people, that's a really revolutionary thought. But it's true. He doesn't condone it. He has to work beyond it, around it, and above it. It doesn't stumble him in any way. But he does not need sin to get his purposes accomplished. If that were the case, then God would be reliant upon it and could not operate without it. I think that is strange thinking. We previously were dead in our previous location. Two things. Your, now here's why I love that, because something we need in our day and age, personal responsibility. Ain't nobody's fault but yo's. Just real quick. My wife served as a chaperone for Nathaniel's field trip the other day, and so I spent all day with Zechariah. He's two and a half years old. And when she came home, he had a Kentucky accent. How you doing, buddy? I'm fine. My wife looked to me. She goes, what did you do <laughs> while I was gone? Your personal responsibility. It's on you. You are answerable for the wrong. And notice it's in two facets. Number one is trespasses. Number two is sins. This is misplaced or unsure footing. And we've talked about this before, being in the plural. It is multiple offenses against God now why is this important because the manifestations of trespasses oh I didn't mean to do that and it just happened or sins yeah I did that and I kind of liked it a little bit but I know it was wrong bad me are all springing from the same root source within us and that is what is known as the sin nature Because Adam has disobeyed God, being a perfect being, he has now inherited this depravity, has brought it into the world. And in doing so, everyone who is genetically an offspring of him, save the Lord Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, but has the womb of Mary. The sin nature is passed from the man into the situation of the child. Way to go, guys. Before you blame Eve for being the one who disobeyed, think about what you're doing in this situation, right? Level that out. Don't don't get all high and mighty on that. But in doing that, we've now created a race of sinners. All of us. All of us guilty. And we're not just sinners by what we do. We don't become sinners when we commit sin and we have an infraction against God of His expectation of what it was. We said, no, I'm not going to do that. It's the fact that in our very Constitution as a being, that's how deep the sin nature has gotten rooted in the thick of that. So our problem is threefold honestly, but it roots back into the idea of what the Bible would normally call in the singular sin. Sin is the problem. Now, we need to understand the word dead. And so I'd ask you to just go with me on this because everything we're going to look at is going to flow out of this, and I've got about 28 minutes to do it. Okay, so get comfortable, sip a coffee, we're good. The word dead is from the Greek word nekros. It means a dead person or a corpse in the noun. And also in the adjective, as we use it here in Ephesians two one, is the idea of just simply being dead. If you take those two together, you find out they're used 129 times in the New Testament. And then you have the verb of it is nekruo. In the active sense, it would be to kill or to put to death, but used passively, it's just the idea of to die, and that's only used three times. Now, the question is, Is what does the New Testament mean by the idea of dead? When you come across this in chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, it's obviously a past tense deal, but it speaks of something that was ongoing while you were ongoing. So we would just naturally conclude the idea of a spiritual deadness. And what in the world does that mean? So the Bible uses it in two ways, literally of a physical deadness and then metaphorically of a spiritual deadness. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is maybe rally around in your Bibles with me, get real nimble in your fingers so that we can look at some scriptures about this. The first one is the fact if you look back at chapter one, verse 20, it says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenlies, in the heavenly places. This is obviously a physical deadness. But what was the issue there? The issue, the fact, is that Christ was separated from his fleshly body, but he did not cease to exist. Jesus didn't pass off the scene, and then he wasn't Jesus anymore. We have a lot of evidence that he was actually doing other things while he was not presently dealing with his body. So his spirit had been separated from his corpse. How about in this one? Turn with me over to Colossians 1:18. I just want you to mark these real quick. If you want to sit with your arms folded and just make me do the work, check your heart, please. That's a joke. Chapter 1 verse 18. We're familiar with the same type of, of wording from what we just saw. It says in verse 18, He is also the head of the body, the church. That's us. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That's a place of honor. It's not the idea that He was created. So that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus is declared the firstborn of the dead. Is it a position of privilege like Old Testament Israel family firstborn? Yes, it is. Double inheritance, the whole deal. Firstborn rights and privileges that come with that. But being the firstborn of the dead also issues to us that there are more dead of which to come forward. Does that make sense? He is the first of which many come. How do we know that? Well, we know that because He's also the firstfruits of resurrection. He's raised first as the firstfruits, and then those who have believed in Him will be raised after Him. We call that the rapture. Notice this next one here, rapture passage. You don't have to turn there. Just read it. Paul declares those believers who are already physically dead as having fallen asleep. I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, as others are, so that you don't grieve as those who have no hope, because those who pass away in Christ are declared as falling asleep. Well, are you saying they're not really dead? No. I'm saying they're deader than a doornail. I'm saying that as far as you're dealing with the idea of this body, it has been vacated. It will then be buried, should be buried. We'll talk about that later, Wisconsinites. Should be buried. You're not making it any harder for Jesus. I'm looking forward to seeing the razzle-dazzle of putting together a cremation as much as you are. I just choose not to place that burden on him, okay? That's all it is. See, you guys are going to go home now looking up your wills to see what's going on. It's Okay. But the idea is, is falling asleep? Well, the reason is, is because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, how is that? My body's still on earth. Yes, but your spirit and soul are now with them. So death is actually a separation of those entities. That's what we're getting at here. How about this next one? Whenever Jesus goes to heal a girl who had died, he actually tells them, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. Does everybody remember how everybody responded? They laughed at him. They're all grieving. I said, this guy's off his rocker. This is the person you brought in to deal with this very sensitive situation? How dare he say such cruel words? And the only thing they could do is respond in laughter. What did Jesus do? He healed the dead. He raised them. What was the problem? She was, at that moment, separated from her situation. This is a big one that I want you to turn to. This is James chapter 2. This is probably the most problematic passage in all of Scripture, with the exception of mistranslating Romans 9 that I've ever seen in my life. And it's amazing how if you just consider the context of this book, all of the fogginess goes away. In fact, anybody that would conclude that the people being talked about in chapter 2 of James as not truly being Christians have been taught that they didn't read that and they didn't come to a biblical conclusion. About that, but there is a presupposition put forward that dead faith is not real faith. There's a problem with that. Notice it says in chapter 2, verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Does everybody see that? James is very clear. Let me read it again. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Does the word dead mean cessation, ceasing to be, or does it mean separated biblically? See, it all depends on how the Bible uses the word of which we can understand this. So let's back up just a little bit. Look what it says in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren? Pause for a second. Does James think they're saved? He uses the word my brethren. I don't know anybody in a church that would call somebody your brother and sister in Christ if you didn't know what their eternal destiny was. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith, here it is where it gets everybody, save him? Here's the question. Save him from what? Hell, obviously. Does every time the Bible uses the word save mean save from hell? No. What about the woman with the issue of blood? If I can just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, I'll be saved. In fact, Jesus tells her, your faith has saved you. Does that mean she was now going to heaven when she died because of that? I don't think that's the point. It's the fact that she was healed. How about you ladies? You can only be saved through childbearing. <laughs> Is that what that means? Context always determines a meaning, and it's the same thing here. Back up and look at verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. What's this talking about? It's talking about when believers appear before the Lord after the rapture, in order to go through the judgment seat of Christ. And this is where we are judged for the deeds that we've done while Christians on earth, whether they are good or whether they are bad. And God is looking to heap riches and commendation, not condemnation, but commendation upon his people. Why? Because God loves to give. And if we've taken the time to respond in obedience to him, we are demonstrating our love for him on this earth and glorifying him in that process. You know what? God says, I want to pay you for that here those missed opportunities will not end up in going to the lake of fire. That's not how that happens. But we will experience a form of shame, understanding of what we could have accomplished in our lives for the Lord, and because of selfishness or whatever circumstances cause us not to operate in faith, we'll actually find out that we only did this much in life. That's a disturbing place to be, but guarantee you, there's no reason to be frightened in that situation. So speak and so act is those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's your context. So then he says, what use is it, my brethren? What profit? What benefit? How does it help the church, believers? If you say you have faith and you don't have any works, can that save you? Save you from what? Save you from a bad, merciless judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. Not if you're truly saved, you'll have works that befit it. Not everybody is super Christian all the time. It doesn't work that way. And James doesn't believe that. Let me give you the example he gives. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothes, clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, and yet does not give them what is necessary for their body, what use? Same word. What good is that? What use is that? What benefit of it? And the idea is, is that it's not. That means that if you've ever come across anyone who was in need of the church, uh, in the church, and you didn't take the time to give them everything they needed, I have every reason to question your salvation because your works were not coupled with your faith. That is not what James is saying. He's saying in no way do you saying that you have faith and works not springing out of that faith benefit the larger body of Christ. When your works are separated from faith, no one benefits. So what's his whole admonition to them? Christian, get to work. Start living by faith. Start operating by faith. Start working by faith. Is that clear? I hope so. If you disagree, great. Email me. That's fantastic. Moving on here. We see in Scripture there are five kinds of death. The idea of death, though, that we find, regardless of what type it is, and this is pretty unique, because normally every word in the Bible has a context that gives it meaning. But when we deal with death, we're only really dealing with the idea of either a physical death or a spiritual death of some nature, but it always carries the understanding of what it is to be separated. Now, our good friend J.B. Hickson, let me borrow this. Notice that you have a spiritual, physical, eternal, carnal, and positional type of death, but in this situation here, I don't know if I've ever used this before. Bing! There it is. All right. Separation from God spiritually, separation of the soul and spirit from the body, separation from God eternally. Separation from the fellowship with God. It's when you're walking as a carnal believer. That's actually possible. 1 Corinthians 3. And separation from your unregenerate self. And each one of these gives us an outline and understanding. Now, some of you try to take pictures of that with your phone. It's okay. It'll be available on the website later on YouTube. You can just pause it and check it out yourself. Or if you ask me nicely, I might be able to get permission to print you a copy. He had to give me permission, obviously. There it is. Okay, just making sure we got it. So now, in dealing with this subject of what it is to be dead, and especially when you're dealing with it, the idea of spiritually speaking, there have largely been two schools of thought that have held on to this issue. Okay, The first school is what is commonly known as Calvinism. Now, Calvinism didn't necessarily originate with John Calvin uh, in the 1600s, 1500s, in that area of the Reformation. In dealing with that, it actually springs from a man named Augustine. Augustine was alive at the end of the 300s, 400s A.D. He's actually considered the father of Catholic theology. And he's the one who came to the determination that God must have chosen some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell based on whether or not infants were able to make it into baptismal waters. At that point, the church had really veered off track, had gotten free of faith alone. And this indoctrination had come in about the idea of the baptismal waters were really the defining moment of all that happened. So you had to be a Lutheran in the early church in order for that to really make sense. If that stepped on somebody's toes, I love you, I'm sorry, okay? it's not my goal. But that type of thinking was bringing in the idea of works and marrying them together. Well, that automatically corrupts the grace of the gospel because now we're waiting on the works of people to be reciprocal to the free grace of God and giving salvation. If Jesus didn't do all the work on the cross, how in the world is my dipping in a baptismal situation going to solidify or make up the lack in that work? It does not, and the Bible never teaches that. Well, in the idea of Calvinism, it was an outgrowth of this thinking over years and eventually came to a place where the view of dead had to be in alignment with the theological construct. Now, it's not any different for the idea of what's known as Arminianism. And Arminianism would hold more of your Wesleyan, sometimes Assembly of God, uh, beliefs in that idea. But with with the Arminians, it came... From the same problem, which we're going to see here in a minute, but trying to come at it from a different way and ending up in the same solution. Imagine that we're going to travel to Madison, but you decide to go through Sauk City and somebody else decides that they're going to go through Partyville and around, but you both end up in the same place. That seems to be what's happened here. Now, just to know what I've saved you from today, I had a really great graphic that I got on the Internet. They were in the form of two hearts right here, and I was going to put these in here and one was of a donkey, and the other one was of an elephant. It was really great. I loved it. And I thought, you know what? I like it a little too much. I probably shouldn't do that. But I'm definitely going to tell you about it, okay? Sometimes from the way that theology is communicated, it's almost like, well, if you're not one, you got to be the other. And, well, if you believe that, then I pigeonhole you here. I think what's really important to recognize is that's when you get into philosophical Christianity and you've abandoned biblical Christianity. Because the Bible allows you to hold a sound view with the Scriptures without having to subscribe to either one of these things. We don't need a classification or a school of thought to deal with that. The issue known at hand regarding being dead is what is commonly understood as total depravity. And both affirm this term, but both deal with it differently. Now, let me give you a definition by someone who is an excellent scholar, of which in some situations I would disagree with, but man, this is a great definition. This is by a guy named J.I. Packer from his book, Concise Theology. He says, it signifies a corruption of our moral and spiritual nature that is total, not in degree, for no one is as bad as he or she might be. Is anybody in here as bad as you could be? Let's hope not. Some of you are like, my kids are as bad as they could be. I get that, but give them grace, it's totally okay. We're not as bad as we could be, but in extent, it declares that no part of us is untouched by sin, and therefore, no action of ours is as good as it should be. And consequently, nothing in us or about us ever appears meritorious in God's eyes. We cannot earn God's favor, no matter what we do, unless grace saves us, we are lost. And to that, I say, amen. That's the whole issue in the Bible. We need God. I can't merit anything to be accepted by Him whatsoever. And anything that I seek to bring is actually counted against me, not in any way for me as far as God is concerned. It's just a whole reason why we have the cross. But the problem is is that total depravity ended up getting redefined. And this is from the exact same book. Total depravity entails entails total inability. That is, the state of not having it in one's self to respond to God and His Word in a sincere and wholehearted way. Paul causes, calls this unresponsiveness of the fallen heart a state of death. And notice here, he is given this as a means to qualify that. In other words, it's not just that you are depraved in the sense of every part of your being is not able to attribute anything of merit before a holy God because you're thoroughly washed with sin. It's the idea that you don't even have the capacity to respond to Him whatsoever. I have conflict with that. I have conflict with that from what I know of the Scriptures. Hold on to it for a second. So how does Calvinism overcome the idea of total inability? Here it is. This is from Steele, Thomas, and Quinn on their book, The Five Points of Calvinism. Because of the fall, man is unable of himself to savingly believe the Gospel. The sinner is dead, blind and deaf to the things of God. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. His will is not free. It is in bondage to his evil nature. Therefore, he will not. Indeed, he cannot choose God over evil in the spiritual realm. In other words, it's a massive moral problem. Consequently, it takes much more than the Spirit's assistance to to bring a sinner to Christ. It takes linchpin. Regeneration by which the Spirit makes the sinner alive and gives him a new nature. Does anybody know what regeneration is? To be born again. Born from above. John chapter 3, yes. We know that. Here's what Calvinism is saying. You're so dead in your sins that the Holy Spirit has to make you born from Above, before you believe in Christ. So in other words, to be regenerated is to be given God's life. New life. Eternal life. I mean, that's the whole point that it is. But yet you haven't responded to the gospel. That's where I have friction with this is the idea that somebody has been made alive, and we'll deal with the whole idea of whether faith is a gift or not when we get to Ephesians 2.8 in about 12 years. We'll deal with that. But my concern is that dead people have been made alive and yet are unbelieving. Now the argument is, well, if they've been made alive, they will believe. Yes, but one has to come before the other. And how much interval of time takes place in that? No one can pin that. That's a problem. That's a problem. The other side is Arminianism. They deal with the whole idea. They would agree with Packer's view on total depravity. But while some Arminians believe that man has the ability to choose God, others would subscribe to what's called prevenient grace. Now that's very interesting too because what prevenient grace is is an opposing side's redefinition of regeneration. So what it is to be made alive. Grace that precedes and enables the first stirrings of a goodwill towards God. That sounds so artsy, doesn't it? I love that. It's a stirring story God. However, I don't think that's exactly what's going on. But the issue remains that mankind is unable to believe. It doesn't matter how you're saying the issue gets rectified. It's still the fact that you have no ability whatsoever. You're like, well, of course we don't, because we're dead in trespasses and sins. Yes, I get all the arguments. I fully understand that. I get it. But I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. So how do we summarize these views? Just real quick. Calvinism teaches that man is so totally depraved that he's unable to believe in Christ and that only those God has selected before the foundation of the world are sovereignly regenerated, remember that's got to happen first, by the Spirit prior to faith so that the person ultimately believes. What that time is, nobody knows. But it would be odd to me that you have a whole bunch of lost people who are spiritually alive who have never believed in Christ. That's strange. How about this? Arminianism, on the other hand, also asserts that man has no free will, is totally depraved, and can't believe of himself, then they supply the idea that God gives the ability to believe to all men, enabling anyone to believe and be saved. They call it prevenient grace or enabling grace. All people have a kind of free will because of this. Two sides opposing, dealing with the same issue, coming roundabout to the same conclusion. What does the Bible say about responding to God? Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. How do we handle someone who's dead spiritually? Acts chapter 10. We're looking at verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian court, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people, and prayed to God continually. But what's interesting is, is if you move over to verse 44, and if you're familiar with this, he has a vision of a man named Peter, he sends for Peter, Peter comes to him, Peter walks in, they're all Gentiles, (coughs) not for sure what to think about that, because everybody who's come to the gospel so far is a Jew, But he ends up telling them about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You move into the rest of chapter 10 and look at verses 44 and 45. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, those people, Jews with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. If it was all a thing where they needed to be made alive before they had faith, then why in the world was he responding the way that he already was to God? That makes no sense. We see when the moment of faith takes place because it's a completion of his message there. Look at verse 43. Of him, of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness and through his name, everyone who, what is it church, believes it's not hard. Who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. What happens? Why did they believe? They believed because they heard the Gospel. How about the Bereans? Turn over to Acts 17. These are some interesting cats. I love it when people quote stuff about Bereans because you're dealing with lost people. Acts chapter 17, look at verse 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded. It means they weren't going to shut them down like they had just come from in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them what? Believe. Therefore, what's therefore Therefore. Because they heard what Paul was saying and they went home and they got out their Old Testament scrolls and they studied, 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 studied. And by doing that, they came to the conclusion of believing in Christ. Could they respond? Sounds like they could to me. How about the next one? We won't go to this one for the interest of time. Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah, Nineveh's evil. Go preach to them that I'm going to destroy them. Okay, God. Everybody remember that? So, large fish comes in, swallows him up. God, what have I done? I'm a fool. That's always good. I can do that for you again if you want to hear it. And then he goes in and he preaches to them. And when he tells them what God's going to do, they repent in sackcloth and ashes. Even the king hands down an edict. Get your cow in sackcloth and ashes. That's how sorry we are for offending God. It sounds like when they heard the message of what was going to happen, they could respond to it. How about Jesus and Nicodemus? Look at this real quick. Go to John 3. John chapter 3. I've always marveled at verse 8. But let's start at verse 6. I think verse 8 is just incredible to ponder. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Pharisees. They're having some sort of conversation. Maybe your mind's going to the chosen on this one. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Verse 7, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, now watch this, How can these things be? How is this even possible, Jesus, that you're telling me this? I love Jesus' response. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Why didn't Jesus say to him, Well, Nicodemus, the answer's simple. You're dead. And you can't understand these things. You can't believe. God didn't regenerate you. God hasn't issued prevenient grace in your direction. No, the Son of God marvels at the fact that someone who's been teaching the Old Testament for all of their life is not responding to what He's telling them in the development of truth. How can this be? It's okay, Nicodemus. You weren't predestined before the foundation of the world. You're going to hell, actually. That's why you don't get it. Is that why we should come to this? It's not how Jesus handles it. He's actually blown away by this. How is it that you don't understand it? It seems pretty cut and dry to me. Now here's another interesting thing about this, the fact that Jesus Christ died and paid the sin penalty for every single person in the world. Hebrews 2.9 tells us he has tasted death for every man. In the commentaries I see, well, that's kind of like whenever a detective shows up and they've got some cocaine out there and they just kind of taste it like that. You've trans- you, you go forward to Hebrews 6, it uses the exact same word talking about the tasting of things being the full embracement of it. So that can't be what it means. We see 1 John 2, 2. He's the propitiation, big jeopardy word, the satisfaction for our sins and not for our sins only, but the sins of the entire world. There's not a segmented group that this is exclusive to. It's the fact that Jesus has died for everyone and made that provision possible. So. Calvin's favorite position on dead, favorite passage, if you would, go to Romans 3. Let's look at this real quick. I want to point something out to you. It's a problem. Romans chapter 3. You're probably very very familiar with this. If you ever have these types of discussions, because I know you all go home and get on Facebook and have these types of discussions, this passage will come up. Exactly, thank you. She got it. Was that Louise? Okay, I figured it was. I didn't even look up, but I knew. Okay. Verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Are Jews better than Gentiles? Are Gentiles better than Jews? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And notice that it's singular, meaning they all have the sin nature. We all have that indwelling sin problem. Verse 10, as it's written, there's none righteous And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And all that I say, Amen. That's exactly correct. That's exactly where we are in life. Notice the things that they list off. Number one, according to this, mankind is unrighteous, having no understanding, turned aside, become useless. We can do no good. We're vile in our speech. We're reckless and violent. We destroy everything. Hello, world. Forsaking all peace, we live without a fear of God. But, it states that no one seeks after God. Here's the problem. It does never say that mankind is unable to respond to God when God comes seeking after them. There is nothing I can do whatsoever to merit a salvation. But if God comes after me, that's the difference maker. That's what changes everything. Now here's the question. If that's the case, has God gone after people? How does God do that? The fact is, is that God is already seeking everyone, and this is what the Bible tells us. Number one, it's through the cross of Christ. Look at John chapter twelve. John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33. One of the great things I love about the Gospel of John is that John will be writing down all of these things that were going on in Jesus' life, and all of a sudden he pauses for a second and he provides in his own little divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit commentary. Here's what he means here. Here's what he was talking about. So that way we're just not left with any kind of confusion about what's going on. Look at John chapter 12, verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself, What is he talking about here? Look at verse 33, so there's no confusion. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. When Jesus Christ is crucified on the cross, there was a pivotal moment in history of which now that salvation had been made available to everyone, there was something drawing everyone to him. Well, all doesn't mean all there. The only reason why you would believe that is you think that Jesus didn't die for everyone. That argument piggybacks on another argument that the Scriptures don't support. But when I see the idea that Jesus Christ tasted death for every man, that all sin has been paid for, that there's not an issue, what you find is, is yes, through the cross of Jesus Christ, He is drawing everyone. How about this? Move over to verse, or chapter 16. The Holy Spirit is already involved in this work. After Acts chapter 2, a different dynamic came into play in order to ensure that this would happen. Chapter 16, look at verse 7 here. Is that where we're starting? 7? But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Obviously talking about the Holy Spirit. More of that's in 14. You can go back and you can look at that. And when He comes, He will convict the world. Now some people say, well, that's only those that have been chosen to go to heaven. It's not. There's nothing in the Scriptures that would ever give you that indication. The world means everybody. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Three areas. Verse 9, concerning sin, why? Because they do not believe me. It's the conviction of the fact that you need a Savior. Unbelief will keep you out of that, but believing will bring you into that. Notice it says the next one, verse 10, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. So while righteousness is not manifested on earth anymore and because he's having to go to the Father, there has to be another element that is present in order to be convicting. Now, when a believer comes to faith in Christ, what do they receive internally? The Holy Spirit takes up residence. Which means the work that he is doing through every one of us as believers deals with the ideas of sin righteousness and judgment we are the means and the vehicle of which god the spirit desires to use in order to go out and to spur that on and create conviction how do you know that because when the plumber comes over to fix the sink and he knows you're a christian because he sees a scripture on your wall and he lets a cuss word slip out he's like and he has a seizure and what does he do i'm so sorry all of a sudden he became a hallmark guy where did that come from that's so weird anybody ever had that happen all the time why Respond like this. Dude, if you're lost, I don't care. Why should you? Interesting. There's something about righteousness in the spirit that pours out of us that it pierces people. I can't explain it. It's what the Holy Spirit does. It says here concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, they do not, uh, and you no longer see me. Verse 11, number three. And concerning judgment, why? Because the ruler of this world has been judged. And if God held him, Satan, accountable and has already judged him, then those who do not believe in the gospel will be along with him. Does that make sense? He is the first fruits of judgment of which God will bring. So not only is the cross of Christ drawing everyone, and Jesus died for everyone, but the fact that the Holy Spirit within us is reaching out to everyone and convicting them, that's not a bad word, sin, righteousness, and judgment. The third thing is sharing the gospel message. Romans 10, 17. Go to this and we'll stop here. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Major verse. If you brought your highlighter today, get it out. Don't lick it, just get it out. Get it ready. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So faith comes through hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Lewis Sperry Chafer, Calvinist, said the Word of God is the agency by which faith is generated. Can we do anything good for God in our sinful, dead and trespasses and sin state? No, we cannot whatsoever. But when He brings about the Gospel and is already orchestrating conviction and Jesus Christ through the cross is already drawing people supernaturally in that way. Now there's a whole lot of components biblically that we have to deal with in life. And if we hold one of those other two views, we have cut it short. Understand it is not a two-party system. So what is the application? Number 1, remember that the gospel's good news. It's not selective news. It's not bipartisan news. It's not playing any favorites news the gospel is meant to be good news and what is the gospel jesus christ died for your sins and rose from the grave do you believe this that is the gospel if it's more than that it's a corruption of the gospel the next one share jesus with your lost friend i sure do wish i would have brought them to church so they could hear about jesus they don't have to be here to see it they can still get involved with the church If you're nervous about that, fear-stricken maybe even, pause, take a moment, pray. Lord, ignite in me the courage and fuel it by the Spirit because my going to hell presently friend who is dead in trespasses and sins needs to hear the message of Christ. Why? So that they can respond in faith to what you're already doing around them. How about the next one? Emphasize the cross of Jesus. Don't ever leave this out. We should have been on this. It's the fact that he steps in and he is the substitution for our sin. And not just one sin. You only have one life. You can only pay for one sin. He has a perfect life and he pays for every sin of every person who's ever lived at all time, past, present, and future. It does not matter. His blood is strong enough to do that. And so in doing that, he takes care of the sin problem. You say, well, if that's the case, everybody's going to heaven. No. No. Because the linchpin is whether or not they've responded to the gospel. And if they don't hear, they won't respond. How can you believe if no one tells them? We can't just simply sit back, cross our legs and say, well, if they're going to get saved, God's going to do it. That's fatalism. That's damning people without the opportunity. Don't make that mistake. That's heresy. Notice here, number four, take confidence in the fact that the Holy Spirit's already working. It's clearly what the Bible says. He didn't just give us the indwelling Holy Spirit for ourselves. In our modern day of personalized Christianity, where we think that every time that we're in the Word of God or in prayer, it's always got to be inward focus, we find that the Bible actually has something very different, that by making those things all outward focus and desiring for our cups to fill up in order to fill the other people around us in the community of Christ, there's supposed to be this surge of, Forward of where people are changed. Well, that's exactly what God wants to do with the Holy Spirit in convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's always outward. It's always others. It's always someone else. And God, through these three means alone, through the cross, through the Spirit, and the idea that people need to hear the message, He is already hotly pursuing lost people. I would hate to think that the only thing that is getting in His way of having this saving message brought to people is me. That would be the concern. And if that's the case, it's time for me to call time out, take a step back and get humble before my God. Because my life is not mine to live, it's His. The same is true of you. You may not believe that, but it's true. It's His life because His Son bought you by His blood. It's His. We tried living our lives. How'd that go? Yeah, in fact, even when we say crazy things like, God, I give to you my life, I guarantee you sitting there going, I don't want that. I've seen what you've done with it. And we're not here to make that all brassy and shiny, because if we did, it would do nothing but fuel pride. No, God instead imparts the new man to us and does a brand new work of his son coming through us, not making this fragile, broken down mess better. Since you said hot mess, faith, that's all I think about. Is what a hot mess I am. Good grief. Pray about sharing the gospel with your friend. Keep the cross of Jesus front and center. Know with all confidence of the scriptures, the Spirit's already working. Just fall in line with what He's doing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that it is clear. Thank you, Lord, for your message of letting us know how you desire to reach people, of helping us understand that they are able to respond when they hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm sure this creates great friction in our minds and in our hearts. In one way or another, Lord, help us to simply cling to what the Word says. We don't have to subscribe to some system. We don't have to be counted as some party. We don't need a promoted designation in order to think that our theological values matter. We just need to be in tune with how You've already spoken. So Father, I pray that you give us mercy in that situation. Lord, I pray that You'd humble me in all of those situations. I know I can ride a high horse about that because of coming out of it. But Lord, I pray God for Your mercy. Reveal to us, Lord, please, as only you can do, where the conviction needs to take place. Those people around us that you strategically place there that are lost, they need to hear the gospel. Lord, we look for you to open the doors and to give boldness and clarity and a heart of love that would move towards them. Thank you, God, for how you work through us, how you desire to use us for your glory. We pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.